Hey guys, it's Ryan. Thanks for tuning into Theology-ish. Before we jump in, I just want to emphasize that the discussions on this podcast are exploratory in nature and to delve into a variety of theological perspectives. They do not strictly represent or define our personal stances on the faith nor the doctrine of our affiliated churches. We encourage listeners to reflect, question, and seek guidance from their local church leaders. Our goal is to foster understanding and curiosity. We ask that you listen with a humble and discerning mind. Thanks for listening and enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to Theology-ish. I am one of your hosts, William Berry, and with me today, as always, is my co-host, Ryan Kelly. Howdy, partner. Howdy. Yeah. How's it going? <laughs> I'm doing I'm doing pretty good. How are you? I'm about fine as frog hair split three ways, partner. Well, sure enough. Sure enough, brother. Uh, uh yeehaw. Anyway, yeah. so t- today on Theology-ish, your favorite theology podcast, we are going to be talking about Something that's kind of important to Christianity, to Only say the least. Of? Well, to say the least, oh, okay. kind of important. Okay. Uh, a little piece of doctrine that you're probably familiar with. You've probably heard it. You probably know it. You probably love it. I would hope so. It's the Trinity. Part one. Jesse, get some like epic music in there. Really make that make that pop. Yeah. yeah. The, Trinity. the Trinity. Part one. And then later we'll do part two. Oh, we will. And part three. three. So that way we can have the Trinity Trinity. Trinity. Ah, that's that's news to me, but I like it. No, okay. I'm not saying no. Anyway, today we're going to be talking about the Trinity as best we can. Uh, Before we get into this, I would like to say that for both myself and I believe Ryan, we believe the orthodox opinion on the trinity which is we believe in god the father maker of heaven and earth we believe in christ the son true god of true god begotten not made incarnate through the virgin all that and the spirit who is equal in eternity and glory and power and honor and all these things however when it comes to talking about the trinity if you don't do it very, very carefully, it's so easy to do a heresy. Oh, it sure it's is. It's so easy to do a heresy, man. And we're not trying to do a heresy. If we say something that's a heresy, assume we're just speaking poorly uh, because you either start with their unity, in which case you end up with Sabellianism, or you start with their particularity, in which case you end up with partialism. And... It's a bad look either way. So yeah. three hypostasis, one usia, that is three persons, one essence. And we'll we'll just go from there, man. Yeah, so William. Yes. Now that you've you've said that, uh I would like you on this very public platform. Okay. To explain the Trinity to me. What is the Trinity? The Trinity. Without a heresy. Without a heresy. No heresies. I'm going to try. There is a kind of being that at its bedrock, you could say its essence 
is that it is God. And this kind of being, whose essence is God, has made itself known to us as the Father, who is the begetter, the Son, who is the begotten, and the Spirit, who proceeds from the Father and Son. Now, all three of these persons who share one essence are equal in all things except for the Father is only different from the Son in that he is not begotten. The Son is only different from the Father in that he is not in that he is is begotten by the Father. And the Spirit is different from the Father and the Son in that he proceeds from them rather than them proceeding from him. Right? Any questions about that? No. Great. That, that was that was pretty good. I I didn't notice any heresies. So Well, there shouldn't be because I I yeah. to the best of my ability rearticulated the penultimate Trinitarian confessions from Nicaea and the likes of the Cappadocian Fathers. Which is something we're going to talk about today as well. This is not just the Trinity, but also Trinitarian confession and what the heck even is that. Um, The cornerstone of Christian doctrine, Ryan. Well, you and I know that. Christians know that. I, well... Most of them. Most Some of, of them, them, hopefully. Anyway. Th- this is going to be for you Christians out there who might not know that, or if you're not a Christian at all. <laughs> yeah, and, and, you know. Cool. Here we are. So uh, Glad you're here. What about that, the, the Trinitarian Confession, would you like to, to talk about? Well, let's, let's start at, at the foundation by which I mean doctrinal foundation. All right. In which there are many opinions on this, some far better than others. There are a few different ways that different groups within the church, large air quotations there, within the church, that that think very differently about this. So you and I both go to Protestant churches. Um, I happen to go to a Baptist church. What What denomination is is your church anyway what what do you go to i don't actually know i'm gonna be real honest with you here okay i don't know <laughs> i have been going there for like two years i am friends with staff there i volunteer i love it not sure what our right denomination now, get on your phone and look it up right now uh, we're we're like vaguely non-denominational we're, we're part of the restoration Yes. Movement. Yeah. Which is inherently anti-denominational. Yeah. So I I don't. It may be non-denominational. Let's. Well, it. I don't know. Let's see when I find out right now, live on this podcast. Keep talking about Trinity or whatever while I'm Googling this. Yeah. So we we both go to Protestant churches. I go to a Baptist church and William goes to maybe a non-denominational church. We, We are Protestant. I know that much. Yes. So. We believe in in the sanctity of the Trinity. There is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, the Father who is the begetter, the Son who is begotten, and the Spirit which proceeds from the first two. 
there are certain... If you're a filioquist, but we'll yes. get to that later. Yeah. There are certain church groups out there who feel very differently about Trinitarian doctrine. Some of these views include the Messianic Jews approach and some others that Jesus was not, in fact, the Son of God, which is a damnable heresy. <laughs> Yeah, and I, we're going to talk I'm, about why it's a damnable heresy. Okay, so I actually can't find anything on the internet, probably mm. because we're part of the Restoration Movement, which is inherently anti-denominational. So okay. we're, we're vaguely non-denominational in some way. Anyway. Well, um, yes, so there are groups out there that don't believe in the Trinity at all, which is paper, one— In paper, I will argue, if you do not believe in the Trinity, you are not part of the church. You are not a Christian if you do not believe in the Trinity. So, yes. Sorry. Like, ye, you're, um, this is a voluntary yeah. group. You can hang out with us or not. But Doors if you're, right there. Doors right there, brother. If um, you're not into the Trinity. Another view, which you've it. actually mentioned in a previous episode, and I can't remember the name for this specific line of thought, but the idea that. The Trinity sort of exists in that God in the days of the Old Testament revealed himself as the Father before then revealing himself as Christ the Son no, in the New Testament. Yeah, Father, Son, and, and then, then as the spirit. the spirit. Yeah, that's Sibelianism, yes. a.k.a. modalism. Um, I also believe wrong. that to be a heresy. It is. It is a heresy. Um, but these are just a couple of ways that people have approached Trinitarian doctrine. And I think only one of them can be right, and one of them is obviously right. Yeah, this is what the councils that the church ends up holding are about. Because in the early 4th century, church service is happening one day in Alexandria. And a fellow whose name is Arius gets up in the middle of service because the bishop, Athanasius, says that Jesus is God, right? And Arius stands up in the middle of service, points at Athanasius, and says, heretic. And Athanasius is like, what? And Arius goes, Jesus isn't God. He's a created thing. He's, we can call him the son, but he's not the same thing as the father. So he doesn't believe that Jesus is the son. He does believe that Jesus is the son of God, but he does not believe that he is truly God in the way God, the father is. And then Arius, he kicks up a big stink. He causes lots of problems and his idea spreads like a cancer throughout the body of the church. And an emperor, a guy you might've heard of before Constantine starts stroking his chin a little bit and he's like I'm we're starting to look really bad guys Christians are looking not good here and I'm one of them and I'm the emperor so we need to figure this out so Constantine has all of the bishops and the church leaders come together and debate whether or not Jesus can be said to be God right and they argue out of scripture and they argue out of philosophical first principles. And it, this isn't just a dogmatic thing that they decide one day they believe in. This was a hard won doctrine by very, very smart and very, very holy men and women who thought about this a lot. And 
the fruit of the Nicene Council is the Nicene Creed, right? Um, which I quoted a little bit of earlier. You have, yeah. Yeah. So we end up with the not the first utterings of Trinitarian doctrine, but we end up with a very short up and fixed Trinitarian doctrine after the Nicene Council. And as the decades roll on, the church finds itself swaying more towards an Arius, an Arian bent, actually. So by the end of the fourth, the Nicene Council happens in 325, I believe. So by the 370s, Arianism, despite the Nicene Council, is the predominant opinion within the church. Fortunately, doctrine is not determined by democracy. It's determined by what is correct. So a group of fellows known as the Cappadocian Fathers, Basil of Caesarea, Gregory of Nazianzus, and Gregory of Nyssa, end up writing some very wonderful things about the Trinity and re-articulating the things from Nicaea in new ways. And anyway, that is to say, I'm sorry, I, I, I got excited there. And that's a good thing. I got excited. I'm glad I like you got the Trinity. excited. And, you know, there are a lot of people, even faithful people, who think that the Trinitarian Confession is just um, thoughtless dogma. And it isn't. It is the result of very careful exegesis and very careful thought on the part of some wonderful scholars and wonderful theologians and wonderful philosophers. So we should get excited about it and we should uh, think of it as a sound teaching that we can investigate quite. Yeah. Yes. That's that's some good history for you. Anyway. And good that, that is profitable for us to know. Um I, I think we're gonna get into this in the next episode a little bit actually, but one of the things that you'll find is that knowing the history of the church is extremely beneficial for for many reasons, but I think one of them being if you don't understand where we came from, you can't avoid heresies of the past or or non-fruitful things that came from our past. Yeah, um, in the town that I grew up in, and it was a teeny tiny town, population 3,000. Um, was it that small? It's that small. Wow. Um, population 3,000, tiny town. And there was a church. It was called Cornerstone Pentecost. Well, Jesse, if you could bleep that out, I don't want to dox these people. <laughs> uh, Jesse's our audio engineer. Anyway. There was this church in that teeny tiny town, and they were Sibelians. That's what they taught. They mm. had little brochures uh, on like the little credenza in the foyer when you walked in that you could like pick up, and it had all these reasons for why the Trinity's not right. And they were nice people. I went there once and I chatted with them and they were perfectly pleasant and everything, but they were wrong. And if I didn't know what Sibelianism was, I wouldn't have known that that was wrong. Right. Like when I encountered it, I was like, I think this is wrong because it didn't match with what I had been taught. But later on, when I learned about modalism and Sibelianism, I was like, holy crap, 
those people that I met that time, they're just Sabellians. Yeah. Or like even the Mormon church, their Christology is basically Arian. Yeah. Where Jesus is this created thing. He's not equal with God the Father, and he's can be called the son, but he's not really God, but he is God, but not the same kind of God. It's just Arianism. And if you know that when you're talking to a Mormon person and they start talking to you about Jesus in their Mormon categories, you will very quickly realize, oh, this is Arianism, and it helps you be a more effective Christian because you don't have to think through all these things on your own because other people have thought through them already. They sure have, and they've done it a lot longer and better than we have. It's true. Anyway, so let's let's, let's move on let's from that. Let's dive into this. So we've got a list of scriptures that we're, we're going to be going over and discussing. What, what I think we're, we're going to do with this, though, is that this is, A, going to be a defense of the Trinitarian Confession in that it, it exists. The Trinity is correct. And biblical. And biblical. But also, we're uh, we're just gonna gonna use this as an opportunity to discuss and talk about the Trinity and things there within, why they matter, you know, what 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 about this? This is cool. Just want to talk about that that kind of thing. So, I I thought it would be fun to start at the very beginning, the beginning of it all, in fact, at creation. Dun dun dun. More, more epic music there, please, Jesse. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't think he needs to put epic music. That was pretty good. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> All right. That that sure was something. So, I'm going to be reading out of Genesis chapter one, and what I think I I'm going to to so graciously show to you here today is uh, the Trinity is present. From the very first chapter of scripture. And to argue against such a thing would be wrong. And we get this. (laughs) We get this out of Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, which reads, Then God said, Let us make humankind in our image, according to our likeness, And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the wild animals of the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humankind in his image, in the image of God. He created them, male and female, he created them. So what, what, uh, what do you see there in verse 26, William? What, in what, what language is used there? He uses plural language he says us and and we and our so what what would that imply william do tell it would imply multiplicity of persons it would now to the untrained christian to someone who hasn't been a christian for long at all or who 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 may not be one anyway it it is a very reasonable and unfortunate mistake to 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 think that well Christ was was born, right? Jesus was born in the the days of the New Testament. So therefore, how can the Trinity be if Jesus wasn't born yet? 
And for the untrained person, that is a completely fair mistake to make. What what say you about that? How how do we defend such a fallacy? Well, they they don't understand that Jesus is co-eternal with the Father. Mm, but how is Jesus co-eternal if Jesus was born in the New Testament days? Because he is... So, imagine, if you will, we have two books, and one of them is sitting on top of the other, right? Sure. And it would be right to say that one book is on top of the other book. Yeah. Right? Imagine, if you would, if their relationship was like that forever. For all of eternity, one book was the book on top, and the other book was the book on the bottom. Imagine, if you will, for forever, one person of the Trinity is begotten, not made, and the other begets for all of eternity. And there we have a bit of a... how... God the Father and God the Son yes. relate to so each other. It is not that Jesus Christ was created, that it, he was he's, born and created in the days of the New Testament. Christ was always part of the Trinitarian Godhead. It's just that he was not revealed to us in the flesh of a human body until the days of the New Testament. Pre-incarnate. Yes. So, you know, even, there... So there, there's um, some really interesting stuff in some of the writings of the church fathers. They talk about, uh, they interpret the Old Testament that every time we encounter God interacting with people is the pre-incarnate Christ interacting with them. So the burning bush that Moses speaks to, he is speaking to Christ. The three men that Abraham has a meal with and refers to them as the Lord and whatnot, that is Christ and et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, you can debate the merits of that hermeneutical method, but it is interesting to go back and look at some of these Old Testament stories and yeah. think that that is Christ that the people are interacting with, not God the Father. Because that's yes. usually how we we find ourselves being a little bit Sibelianist in our thinking where God in the Old Testament is God the Father, and God in the New Testament is Jesus, right? And he, now it's the Spirit. And now it's the Spirit. Even if we don't believe that that's the thing, that's how our brains kind of default to thinking about yeah. it. But maybe all the times that we're interacting with God in the Old Testament, maybe we should be thinking of those as interactions with Christ. Yes. Right? So, yeah, I... I don't know about you, but even just reading the one passage straight out of the first chapter in Holy Scripture, I think that's a pretty infallible statement in in the bucket for the Trinitarian Godhead existing. Yeah, and um, Jewish folk will take issue with that reading of Genesis 1 for obvious reasons, and that's fine, but... They're it's wrong. <laughs> it says what it says, man, and I don't know what to tell you. Uh, yeah, but I don't know. I, I just find it very, 
I find it very cool that we see Trinitarian language being used in the first chapter of Holy Scripture because it makes you wonder, you know, back in the days when it was likely Moses who wrote Genesis, if memory serves, yeah. It, Probably. Yeah, if we, we have no back idea. Back in the days of Moses sure, or Moses. whoever wrote this, makes me wonder if, if they were using plural language in the ancient Hebrew text but they didn't understand the Trinity to be the way that it is back then. I wonder how many people that confused, how many people read the Torah and saw us and we, and went, huh, weird. There, there's some really interesting scholarship that we can talk about some other day about how the ancient Jews were not strictly speaking monotheistic. Um, and there's plenty of evidence of support for that opinion in Holy Scripture. And I think that Moses probably would have been totally cool with the Trinitarian Confession if you were to explain it to him. And it's not until later on that the the Jewish understanding gets really firmly monotheistic and then it will be several centuries further down the line before they even start using the language of monotheism because that's a word that's coined in like the 1800s or something. Yeah, sort of like how transubstantiation as as a term was coined, you know, way, way later. Yeah. Even so, though they were using language indicative of that for a long time prior. Right. It, we don't get the language and the definitions of transubstantiation until Aquinas in the 13th century. But there's plenty of other documents long before that 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 talk about it. Yeah, so anyway, Anyway. I I just find it very interesting that God reveals himself as the Trinitarian Godhead in in the very beginning of it all, at the start of everything, which, man, that's cool. I just think that's a super cool fact, and I love that. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Well, we've got even more scripture to go over. We sure um, do. You want to read one? You've got a few. I've got a few. You want to you want to popcorn this? Yeah, sure. Uh I think that since we have so many, perhaps if I read one, make a brief remark about it and then you can read one, make a brief remark about it and we can do that. Perhaps. And that way we can We'll get see, we've, these. Got, we've got plenty of time left, actually, so yeah, we'll, we'll see. On any number of these, we could spend hours. So anyway, in the book of Matthew, chapter 28, verse 19, which you might be familiar with as the Great Commission. We read this in a previous episode. We did. Jesus says to his disciples, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Now, we have all the persons of the Trinity present here, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And in the Greek, when he says, baptize people in the name, it's onoma, which is the Greek singular. If it were plural, he would say onomoi, right? And they're spelled entirely, not entirely different, but they're spelled differently, they're pronounced differently, they're Different words, right? But Jesus says that the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit is 
one name, singular. And for the Jewish folk who were writing the New Testament and writing the book of Matthew, because it was written by Jewish folk, the name of God is so holy that you get a new pen and a new inkwell when you write it. You write that holy name, and then you dispose of that inkwell and pen and get a new one to continue your writing because it is holy, because it is unique and important, and you do not ever say the name of God, right, as a Jewish person. To say that the name of God the Father is synonymous with the Son and the Spirit is fantastically significant. And we don't make a big enough deal about that because, you know, in the English, it doesn't pop out as much as the Greek. But I remember when I was learning Greek, and this was one of our exercises, we had to translate this one. Because when you're dealing with another language, you have to really think about what every single word means. Sure. Right? And you have to really think about how to get it right and bring it into the English language. And that was the first time I ever noticed, holy crap. This is singular. It's not a it's not plural. It's not the names. It's one name. And that's a, a pretty important I I'm going to read out of first John. Or sorry, not first John, just John. I'm gonna read out of John's gospel specifically. I'm gonna be getting into first John later. I'm gonna be reading John chapter one. I'm going to read verses 10 through 18, which are as follows. He was in the world, and the world came into being through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to know was, or sorry, he came to what was his own, and his own people did not accept him. But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God, who were born not of blood, or of the will of the flesh, or of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and lived among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory as of the Father's only Son, full of grace and truth. John testified to him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, Of me, because he was born before, or sorry, because he was before me. Man, I can't read today. From his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. The law indeed was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. It is God, the only son who was close to the father's heart, who has made him known. Amen. I, I don't know about you, but there was a lot of Trinitarian language in that. <laughs> yeah, John 1 is... Well, all of John's writings, but John 1 in particular is some of the strongest Trinitarian language that we get, especially in regards to the Son. Um, there's another part in John that we weren't planning on reading in, oh, I don't remember where, but Jesus says that no one, that he and the Father are one and whoever has seen him has seen the Father, right? Like, that. that's... 
pretty, pretty significant, pretty strong language there. Um, but yeah, John one, that's like the cornerstone of Christ's divinity, you know? Yeah. And I mean, especially that last verse, no one has ever seen God. It is, it is God, the only son who was close to the father's heart, who has made him known. I mean, I I would be hard pressed to find a good argument against the Trinitarian Godhead looking at that verse when it literally refers to him as God, the only son, both capital G, capital S, God, the only son who is close to the father's heart, who has made him known. And the, the only way I could see anyone justifying that this isn't Trinitarian confession is if you say that John was wrong and to say that John was wrong is equally as bad. Yeah. Um, there's also some creative translation that you can do with John one to make it not say what it does say. Um, so verse one in the beginning was the word and the word was God and the word was with God. Or, in, I'm sorry, I got that backwards. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, in the Greek, it has, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word... So, Word. You'll get there. <laughs> when it says, the Word was God, that God does not have a definitive article in front of it, okay? So, sometimes in Greek, when you translate some, a noun without a definitive article in front of it, you can add a, you can add the letter, or the word a, or a, in front of it, right? So, it doesn't say that the word was the God, Therefore, sometimes Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons do this. They translate it as the word was a God, but they're adding that indefinite article there. The only problem with this is that that is not how Greek works. You put the definitive article, you put the word the in Greek in front of the subject of your sentence, right? And the subject of that sentence is the word at the first part. In the beginning was the word. So the word gets an article, but God later on does not get an article. And it doesn't get the definitive article, the, because it's not the subject. Interesting. So Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses will say he is a God. And their translations of the Bible translate it thusly. And they get that way by not understanding how Greek grammar works. That's, that's wrong. No one who reads Greek well, and by that I mean actually knows it, would translate that as the word was a god. That's not how you should render it in English. But because they have theological reasons to render it that way, they do because they're filthy Aryans. But I digress. Nice people. <laughs> nice. Mormons are nice. Oh, they sure are. They're just wrong. And I'm sorry. That makes you a heretic. 
specifically yeah. an Aryan. Yeah, I, I man, I'd I'd sit down and have like a beer with a Mormon. Were they allowed to drink no, beer? No, you wouldn't. But they can't. They, they can't. <laughs> but Mormons are just unreasonably kind and nice, which is good. Yeah, chill people, super chill, just but, wrong. You know. <laughs> um, but I I do also find it interesting that it it refers in in scripture um and I, I i'm so bad about bible references man i can't remember what verses are from what for the life of me i struggle with that a lot it's in the grocery store i just don't know what aisle yes um but in in scripture it it says you know that all scripture is god breathed and profitable for teaching uh, one depending of the depending on your translation one of the timothys yeah i believe it's second timothy Depending on your translation, it either it either refers to scripture as God inspired or God breathed and is profitable for teaching. Jesus is referred to as the living word. Now, I, I'm not at all saying that Jesus is walking scripture because that's that's not correct. That is not the way that we talk about that or refer to, to Jesus. But. Jesus is the living word of God and therefore also profitable for teaching, which is great. Um, I don't know. I just I just find that to be interesting because John there does just refer to him as the living word. So the the Greek word there, logos, is where we get our word logic. Um, it's something like reason or purpose or uh, governing principle, right? It was a really important concept in Stoic philosophy. There's the logos, and it's, that's the ordering principle. It, it's almost in a modern context. John might write, "In the beginning was oh, I don't know what's a good analogy. In the beginning was string theory and mathematics, right?" But in, in like a more esoteric way. Sure. Right. So the logos is not really analogous to string theory or quantum mechanics, but it's that kind of higher, greater organizing thing that the universe conforms to. And you could describe it as being the very mind of God, right? Does that make sense? You're you're nodding it, like it you, you you're following but not buying it. That is an interesting concept. And I I feel like I'd have to do some more more digging into that to draw any conclusions because that's that's different. It's interesting. Yeah, um but I'm not sure how I feel about it, but I I, I understand what you're what you're getting at. Yeah, so the the another way that this is often talked about in the writings of the church historically is um the wisdom of God. Right? Is that is that the and Christ is the wisdom of God. Is yeah. that is that a little bit more Yeah. Yeah, that's a little more digestible, I yeah. think. Yeah. So Uh, that's, mm, I'm going to have to chew on that. In the beginning is the wisdom of God. Yeah. 
and it was God and it was with God and nothing that was made was made apart from that wisdom. Yes. Apart from that ordering principle. Um, I'm going to have to do some chewing on that. That's interesting. Yeah, that, that's a deep one to get into, man. It sure is. That's, it's heady. Well, anyway, let's anyway. let's keep moving here. Um, all very good stuff. Very, very good, very good stuff. But we've got more verses to go over and read and discuss and some other general things just to talk about. So what, uh, what do you got up here? Ah, oh, geez, where'd it go? There it is. First Corinthians chapter two. There you go. Verse 10. These things God has revealed. So, so far we've talked a lot about the son, especially yes. in what we just talked about, because the word becomes flesh. The yes. word becomes in meat incarnate in the person of Jesus Christ. In meat. Whew. That's what incarnate means. Is it? Carn. Oh man, it is. Carne, like oh, man. I n- carne asada. Dude, right? I've never thought of that. Yeah, oh it, man. In, the word incarnate <laughs> is literally the word in meat. Oh, that's weird. Yeah. Anyway. That just broke my brain a little bit. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. I should have known that. I really should have, but. It's one of those things that you would never think about it unless someone points it out. No. And then you're like, ah, oh, jeez. I've never thought of that. That makes so much sense. It- Oh, man, I feel like an idiot now. <laughs> so we've talked a lot about the sun. Now I'm going to s- point out some stuff about the spirit. So this is 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 10. These things God has revealed to us through the spirit, for the spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. Now, what Paul is saying there in 1 Corinthians is that the spirit, which is the Holy Spirit, searches out and knows the very inner workings and depths of God. Now, this means one of two things. Either the spirit is greater than God, because you'd have to be greater than something to to uh, understand it like that. Yes. And this, of course, can't be the case because that's foolishness. Or the spirit is God. The spirit is equal in divinity to God, which is not foolishness. So uh, we've already established the, the son's divinity through John one. And now here in Corinthians, we can quite easily establish the spirit's equal divinity to the. Yeah. And I think the beauty of it is there doesn't need to be much defending for the divinity of the father. Yeah. It's kind of just a sort of a, a gimme. Yeah, yeah. That's. That's a hand me out. <laughs> now, uh, that's all I'm going to say about that. Now it's your turn to uh, read us a Bible verse. That was all my references. That brother. was all you ha- I thought you had something in First John. Did I not read that already? No, you. I thought I did. We we spent a while on John one. I guess we did. Man, I'm not with it today. I'm struggling. I'm ashamed. Me more than you, man. I'm ashamed of you. So that that's yeah. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> We're gonna be in first John chapter five. Get this, this pulled up here. The best John. First John, best, best John. Best John. I'm gonna read the entirety of chapter five. Oh jeez. Which is pretty short, actually. Well, yeah, it's first John. So, so I, I'm gonna read all of, of John chapter five here. Let's let's see what John had to say. 
Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the parent loves the child. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For the love of God is this, that we obey his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God conquers the world. And this is the victory that conquers the world, our faith. Who is it that conquers the world but the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not with the water only, but with the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one that testifies, for the Spirit is the truth. There are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive human testimony, the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God that he has testified to his Son. Those who believe in the Son of God have the testimony in their hearts. Those who do not believe in God have made him a liar by not believing in the testimony that God has given concerning his son. And this is the testimony. God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. I write these things to you. Yes, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the boldness we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have obtained the requests made of him. If you see your brother or sister committing what is not a mortal sin, you will ask and God will give life to such a one. But those who sin whose sin is not mortal. There is sin that is mortal. I do not say that to you so that you should pray about that. Er, I misread that. There is in sin that is mortal. I do not say that to you. Should, that you should pray about that. Man, I'm struggling today. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that is not mortal. We know that those who are born of God do not sin. But the one who was born of God protects them, and the evil one does not touch them. We know that we are God's children, and that the whole world is under the power of the evil one. Lies under the power of the evil one. And we know that, that the Son of God has come and given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols." I apologize. I struggled there. I I don't know why, but shameful. I am struggling to read today. So what what are your uh, trinitarian f- reflections on 1 John chapter 5? Well, something great about 1 John chapter 5 is that it talks about all three parts of the Trinity in one in one condensed chapter. We get Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we, we've, get, we've not got a ton of time left, so I don't want to spend too much time on this, but I, I really like 1 John chapter 5. I really like what it has to say, and I really like its, its Trinitarian confession, frankly, because that's what it is. Um, and I think that to try and argue against what 1 John had to say there would be foolish, yeah, you're generally speaking if you want to 
go up against Holy Scripture, you're going to lose. So I encourage yeah. you not to do that. Any any particular thoughts on 1 John chapter 5 there? Oh, geez. Particular thoughts on 1 John chapter 5. Mm, no. All right. I mean, I there are lots of things that I could say about it, um, but I think it speaks for itself. So I'll let it speak for itself. All right. And we'll, we'll move on. You've got a, another verse here, and I think this is our last one. Second to last. Okay. So this is Second Corinthians chapter 2, verse 17. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And all of us, with unveiled faces, seeing the glory of the Lord as though reflected in a mirror, are being transformed into the same image from one degree to glory, of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, the Spirit. So that one's pretty clear cut. The spirit is the Lord. Yeah, we got a, we got a, a second um, instance of Paul saying that the spirit is God. Um, and to those of you who don't like Trinitarian confession, sorry, but Paul is smarter than you. <laughs> yeah, and like, Hate to say it, but it's true. You know. Maybe this isn't the podcast for you, man. Like, I'm not trying to scare off potential listeners. Oh, no, stay. We need the numbers. Yeah, I mean, after you play the first 30 seconds, it counts as a view. So, at this point... You can leave. You can leave if you aren't into this. That's fine. I hate it for you, but, you know, go hang out with people that think like you do. Be, be true to yourself and go hang out with people that have similar beliefs to you. And when those <laughs> beliefs land you in the eternal lake of fire, <laughs> that's not our fault. <laughs> Second Corinthians chapter yeah. 13 verse 11. This one's good. <laughs> Finally, brothers and sisters, farewell. Put things in order, listen to my appeal, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit with you all. Ayo, looks like we got all three again. All, all three in, in one one place. Sure enough, Paul's real good at the whole Trinitarian thing. Yeah. Um, I, I think what you'll have found over the course of this episode and through the various scripture references, it's strictly Trinitarian in nature, and to disagree with that is a heresy. So now we might find ourselves asking a question, and this is a legitimate question. If the Trinity is everywhere in the Bible, as I think we just showed, at the very least everywhere in the New Testament, if the Trinity is all over it, why is the word Trinity not there? Because the word Trinity itself does not appear anywhere in Holy Scripture. And my friends, the reason is quite simple. Ryan, what language was the Bible written in? Ancient Hebrew and Ancient Greek. Yeah. Do you know what language the word Trinity is? That's, uh, is that English or Latin? It's Latin. Yeah. So you might ask yourself, why is the word Trinity not in Holy Scripture? And the answer is because it's Latin. 
And it's a Latin word. That's what all. What was all of Holy Scripture translated to before it was translated to English, William? Latin. It sure was. Yeah, the Vulgate. Um, so that's why the word Trinity is not in Holy Scripture. The first Christian author who was writing in Latin that we still have documents from, Tertullian of Carthage, he uses the word Trinity. And we like Tertullian of Carthage. We like him okay. There, there, mm. There's mixed mixed feelings there. He wrote some wonderful things. Yeah. And he ended up getting caught up in a heresy called Montanism, which we might have the occasion to talk about someday. Uh, but he ends his life probably as a Montanist, so he's Tertullian of Carthage, not Saint Tertullian of Carthage, mm. right? But he has been well-regarded and well-loved throughout church history. At least his writings have been. Um, they're very good and very well-written. And, you know, sometimes you uh, just end up a heretic. It yeah. happens. And that's... <laughs> The Trinity in Scripture. Let me ask you this. What is Trinitarian confession specifically? Ah, jeez. I'm not sure how to answer that. Mm. That the Father and Son and Spirit are equal in glory, in honor, um, co-eternal, all that stuff, I guess. I I think that'd be... A fair way to yeah. to define that. I, I didn't have. No. I do just want to share a very interesting bit as we as we get to closing out here, which is I've I've been reading through some Bonhoeffer, some Dietrich Bonhoeffer lately, and as I was looking into some stuff about Bonhoeffer, I came across an article in which the author of said article makes the argument that Dietrich Bonhoeffer did not believe in the Holy Trinity and died a heretic. Now, I don't know about you, William, but I've actually read some Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Um, Most recently, The Cost of Discipleship. And somewhere in the middle of that, I very clearly remember Dietrich Bonhoeffer referring to Christ the Son as the Holy Holy Lord, he who who is the Son of God, and I don't know, this is just fresh on the mind, so I kind of wanted to bring it up, but... To say that Dietrich Bonhoeffer didn't believe in the Trinity and died a heretic seems like a very baseless claim. Yeah, I have encountered several authors who make claims that Bonhoeffer was something other than orthodox, and they do it because he seems like a a good authority to uh, try and put on your side so that way you can pretend like you're not yeah, a, a baseless heretic but yeah no he he was it's not my job to defend bonhoeffer's theology nor is it uh necessary because there are people who have done that better than me i'm sure but that just happened to be fresh on the mind and sort of related to this so in, in the gentlest terms possible that is a silly claim yeah, Dietrich Bonhoeffer is one of the most notable and influential theologians and writers of the 20th century, up there with C.S. Lewis and a few others. Um, and also, in my opinion, one of the coolest martyrs 
in in our history. Yeah, he fought Nazis, bro. He did. He was a spy against the Nazis during his final days, which is so cool. Yeah, and screw those guys. Yeah, we don't care for those guys. Yeah, um, they suck. Read Dietrich Bonhoeffer. It's great stuff. We like Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And if you encounter someone who suggests that he's anything but a a faithful martyr, I suggest that you call them silly and move on with your life. Yeah. The Trinity is important, and I hope and it's that real. this has helped you understand it a little bit better. I hope that um, this might have cleared up some questions you might have had. And yeah. Uh, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. On whatever podcast platform you're on, Spotify, Podcatcher. Yeah, Your favorite Samsung podcatcher. Podcast, Podcast Index, a few others. Soon, Apple Podcast, hopefully. I'm working on it, I swear. Yeah, it's leave a us leave us a, a like, a review. Comment. Comment. Don't forget to smash that like button and, and share hit with the your bell. friends or family. Send this to your pastor. They love getting these kinds of things. Especially when they're more educated than us. And that's not hard to do. Sure isn't. Yeah. Anyway, thanks for listening. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.